Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. The Tito's handmade vodka was ice cold, condensation trickling down the copper metal shaker. It's got to be fresh lime, they drawled. Tart, but balanced. They weren't normally this finicky about cocktail hour. But with Tito's, it had to be perfect. Simple syrup, the final ingredient. The sound of shaking filled the room to the brim. For the perfect pour at next week's book club, try the Tito's Gim Literature. Find the recipe at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. LeVar Burton Reads is supported by Audible. Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you, whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, or even learn something new. And with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, Audible has all the audio content you need to start your year on the right foot. So here's a recommendation from me to you. Go find Ursula K. Le Guin's novel, the Dispossessed. It is an ambiguous utopian tale and available on Audible. It is indeed one of Ursula's best novels for adults. Do check it out. Whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo, you can get through tons of books while doing almost anything. And Audible even lets you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. You can start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash LeVar or text LeVar to 500-500. That's audible.com slash LeVar or text L-E-V-A-R to 500-500 for a 30-day trial and your first audiobook for free. You can do it with audiobooks. You probably know Vox. They take all that noise about news, policy, culture, and everything that matters and make it into perfect explainers. Now, Vox has a new daily news podcast, Today Explained, and it's joining us here on the Stitcher Network. Today Explained is an all-killer, no-filler explainer that answers the big questions about that day's news. Each episode is full of the most important voices and reporting you need to hear. Subscribe now in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, and Today Explained will be waiting for you every afternoon. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction and read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Today, I'm reading a story called Furry Night by Joan Aiken. You can find it in her collection of short stories called The People in the Castle from Small Beer Press. Joan was a beloved British author of books and stories, both for adults and for children. She was made an Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth for her contributions to children's literature. 
Now, maybe you've read one of Joan's most famous works, a children's novel called The Wolves of Willoughby Chase. Wolves play a big role in today's story as well. Joan often wrote fantasy stories, supernatural stories, and alternative histories. And there are a lot of elements of folklore and fairy tales in her work as well. One thing that will strike you right away is that her language and references are extremely precise. There's a lot of warmth and plenty of charm, but you're not going to find one word out of place. Also, there are lots and lots of references and recitations of Shakespeare. And here's a disclaimer. Um, I am not Sir Patrick Stewart, y'all. So deal with it. There's that. You'll also get the sense that these references are all carefully plucked out of Joan's vast mental library, but you can certainly enjoy the story without knowing any of these things. Now, the story is sort of grounded, but it's very fantastic and wholly inventive. Think maybe of J.K. Rowling's Hogwarts when we hear these descriptions of places and people and the competition that takes place called the furry race. The story itself is centered on a man who is completely revered in his circle, but who is a problem for basically every single person around him. And we'll see in the story how everyone chooses to engage with that problem. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. Furry Night by Joan Aiken. The deserted aisles of the National Museum of Dramatic Art lay very, very still in the blue autumn twilight. Not a whisper of wind stirred the folds of Irving's purple cloak. Ellen Terry's ostrich fan was smooth and unruffled. The blue-black gleaming breastplate that Sir Murdoch Meredith, founder of the museum, had worn as Macbeth, held its reflection as quietly as a cottage kettle. And yet, despite this hush, there was an air of strain, of expectancy, along the narrow, coconut-matted galleries between the glass cases, a tension suggesting that some crisis had taken or was about to take place. In the total stillness, a listener might have imagined that he heard ever so faintly the patter of stealthy feet far away among the exhibits. Two men, standing in the shadow of the Garrick showcase, were talking in low voices. This is where it happened, said the elder white-haired man. He picked up a splinter of broken glass, frowned at it, and dropped it into a litter bin. The glass had been removed from the front of the case, and some black tights and gilt medals hung exposed to the evening air. We managed to hush it up. The hospital and ambulance men will be discreet, of course. Nobody else was there, luckily. Only the bishop was worried. I should think so, the younger man said. It's enough to make anybody anxious. 
No. I mean, he was worried. Hush, the white-haired man whispered. Here comes Sir Murdoch. The distant susurration had intensified into soft, pacing footsteps. The two men, without a word, stepped farther back in the shadow until they were out of sight. A figure appeared at the end of the aisle and moved forward until it stood beneath the portrait of Edmund Keene as Shylock. The picture in its deep frame was nothing but a square of dark against the wall. Although they were expecting it, both men jumped when the haunted voice began to speak. You may as well use question with the wolf. Why he hath made the ewe bleat for the lamb? A sleeve of one of the watchers brushed against the wall, the lightest possible touch. But Sir Murdoch swung round sharply, his head outthrust, teeth bared. They held their breath, and after a moment he turned back to the picture. Thy currish spirit governed a wolf who hanged for human slaughter. Even from the gallows did his fell soul fleet. He paused, with a hand pressed to his forehead, and then leaned forward and hissed, Thy desires are wolvish, bloody, starved, and ravenous. His head sank on his chest. His voice ceased. He brooded for a moment and then resumed his pacing and soon passed out of sight. They heard the steps go lightly down the stairs and presently the whine of the revolving door. After a prudent interval, the two others emerged from their hiding place, left the gallery, and went out to a car that was waiting for them in Great Smith Street. I wanted you to see that, Peachtree, said the elder man, to give you some idea of what you are taking on. Candidly, as far as experience goes, I hardly feel you are qualified for the job. You are young and tough and have presence of mind. Most important of all, Sir Murdoch seems to have taken a fancy to you. You will have to keep an unobtrusive eye on him every minute of the day, your job is a combination of secretary, companion, and resident psychiatrist. I have written to Dr. Defoe, the local GP at Paul Grew. He is old, but you will find him full of practical sense. Take his advice. I think you said you were brought up in Australia? Yes, Ian Peachtree said. I only came to this country six months ago. Ah, so you missed seeing Sir Murdoch act. Was he so very wonderful? He made the comedies too macabre, said Lord Hoyk, considering. But in the tragedies, there was no one to touch him. His Macbeth was something to make you shudder when he said, alarmed by his sentinel, the wolf whose howls his watch thus with his stealthy pace with Tarkin's ravishing strides towards his design moves like a ghast. He used to take two or three stealthy steps across the stage, and you could literally see the gray fur rise on his hackles, the lips draw back from his fangs, the yellow eyes begin to gleam. 
It made a cold chill run down your spine. As Shylock and Caesar and Timon, he was unrivaled. Othello and Antony he never touched, but his Iago was a masterpiece of villainy. Why did he give it up? He can't be much over fifty. As with other sufferers from lycanthropy, said Lord Hoyk, Sir Murdoch has an ungovernable temper. Whenever he flew into a rage, it brought on an attack, and they grew more and more frequent. A clumsy stagehand, a missed cue, might set him off. He began to shake with rage, and the terrifying change would take place. On stage, it wasn't so bad. He had his audiences completely hypnotized, and they easily accepted a gray fur Diago padding across the stage with a handkerchief in his mouth. But off stage, it was less easy. The claims for mauling and worrying were beginning to mount up. Equity objected. So, he retired, and for some time, founding the museum absorbed him. But now it's finished, his temper is becoming uncertain again. This afternoon, as you know, he pounced on the bishop for innocently remarking that Garrick's Hamlet was the world's greatest piece of acting. How do you deal with the attacks? What's the treatment? Wolfsbane. Two or three drops given in a powerful sedative will restore him for the time. Of course, administering it is the problem, as you can imagine. I only hope the surroundings in Cornwall will be sufficiently peaceful so that he is not provoked. It's a pity he never married. A woman's influence would be beneficial. Why didn't he? Jilted when he was thirty. Never looked at another woman. Some girl down at Pole grew near his home. It was a real slap in the face. She wrote two days before the wedding saying she couldn't stand his temper. That began it all. This will be the first time he's been back there. Well, here we are, said Lord Hoyk, glancing out at his Harley Street doorstep. Come in, and I'll give you the Wolfsbane prescription. The eminent consultant courteously held the door for his young colleague. The journey to Cornwall was uneventful. Dr. Peachtree drove his distinguished patient, glancing at him from time to time with mingled awe and affection. Would the harassing crawl down the A30, the jam in Exeter, the flat tire on Dartmoor bring on an attack? Would he be able to cope if they did? But the handsome profile remained unchanged. The golden eyes in their deep sockets stayed the eyes of a man, not those of a wolf. And Sir Murdoch talked entertainingly, not at all discomposed by the delays. Ian was fascinated by his tales of the theater. There was only one anxious moment. When they reached the borders of Polgrew Chase, Sir Murdoch glanced angrily at his neglected coverts where the brambles grew long and wild. Wait till I see that agent, he muttered, and then half to himself, Oh, thou wilt be a wilderness again, peopled with wolves. Ian devoutly hoped that the agent would have a good excuse. But the hall, hideous Victorian Gothic barrack though it was, they found gay with lights and warm with welcome. 
The old housekeeper wept over Sir Murdoch. Bottles were uncorked. The table shone with ancestral silver. Ian began to feel less apprehensive. After dinner, they moved outside with their nuts and wine to sit in the light that streamed over the terrace from the dining room French windows. A great walnut tree hung shadowy above them. Its golden aromatic leaves littered the flagstones at their feet. This place has a healing air, Sir Murdoch said. I should have come here sooner. Suddenly, he stiffened. Hudson, who are those? Far across the park, almost out of sight in the dusk, figures were flitting among the trees. Huh? said the housekeeper comfortably. They're none but the lads, Sir Murdoch, practicing for the furry race. Don't you worry about them. They won't do no harm. On my land, Sir Murdoch said, running across my land? Ian saw with a sinking heart that his eyes were turning to gleaming yellow slits. His hands were stiffening and curling. Would the housekeeper mind? Did she know her master was subject to these attacks? He felt in his pocket for the little ampoules of Wolfsbane, the hypodermic syringe. There came an interruption. A girl's clear voice was heard singing. Now the hungry lion roars, and the wolf behowls the moon. It's Miss Clarissa, said the housekeeper with relief. A slender figure swung round the corner of the terrace and came towards them. Sir Murdoch, how do you do? I'm Clarissa Defoe. My father sent me up to pay his respects. He would have come himself, but he was called out on a case. Isn't it a gorgeous night? Sitting down beside them, she chatted amusingly and easily, while Ian observed with astonished delight that his employer's hands were unclenching and his eyes were becoming their normal shape again. If this girl was able to soothe Sir Murdoch without recourse to Wolfsbane, they must see a lot of her. But when Sir Murdoch remarked that the evening was becoming chilly and he proposed that they go indoors, Ian's embryonic plan received a jolt. He was a tough and friendly young man who had never taken a great deal of interest in girls. The first sight, in lamplight, of Clarissa Defoe's wild beauty came on him with a shattering impact. Could he expose her to danger without warning her? More and more enslaved, he sat gazing as Clarissa played and sang Ariel's songs. Sir Murdoch seemed completely charmed and relaxed. When Clarissa left, he let Ian persuade him to bed without the topic of the furry race coming up again. Next morning, However, when Ian went down to the village for a consultation with cheerful, shrewd-eyed old Dr. Defoe, he asked about it. Huh? <laughs> said the doctor. <laughs> the fairy race! My daughter revived it five years ago. There's two villages, you see. Paul Grew and Lostmid. And there's this ball, what they call the furry ball. It's not furry, it's made of applewood with a silver band round the middle. 
and on the band is written, Fro lost mid parish, if I go, heads will be broke and blood will flow. The ball is kept in Lostmid, and on the day of the race, one of the Paul Grew lads has to sneak in and take it and get it over the parish boundary before anybody stops him. Nobody succeeded in doing it yet, but why do you ask? Ian explained about the scene the night before. Eh, yeah, I see. That's awkward. You're afraid it may bring on an attack if he sees them crossing his land. Trouble is, that's the quickest shortcut over the parish boundary. If your daughter withdrew her support, would the race be abandoned? <laughs> My dear feller, she'd never do that. She's mad about it. She's a bit of a tomboy, Clarissa, and the roughhousing amuses her. Always is plenty of horseplay, even though they don't get the ball over the boundary. If her mother were still alive now, bless my soul, the old doctor burst out looking troubled. I wish Meredith had never come back to these parts. That I do. You can speak with Clarissa about it, but I doubt you'll not persuade her. She's out, looking over the course now. The two villages of Lostmid and Pole Grew lay in deep adjacent glens, and Polgrew Chase ended on the stretch of high moorland that ran between them. There was a crossroads and a telephone box used by both villages. A spinny of wind-bitten beaches stood in one angle of the cross, and Clarissa was thoughtfully surveying this terrain. Ian joined her, turning to look back towards the hall and noticing with relief that Sir Murdoch was still, as he had been left, placidly knocking a ball around his private golf course. It was a stormy, shining day. Ian saw that Clarissa's hair was exactly the color of the sea-browned beech leaves and that the strange angles of her face were emphasized by the wild shafts of sunlight glancing through the trees. He put his difficulties to her. Oh, dear, she said, wrinkling her brow. How unfortunate. The boys are so keen on the race, I don't think they'd ever give it up. Couldn't they go some other way? But this is the only possible way, don't you see? In the old days, of course, this all used to be common land. Do you know who the runner is going to be? The, the boy with the ball, Ian asked, wondering if a sufficiently heavy bribe would persuade him to take a longer way around. But Clarissa smiled with innocent topaz eyes. My dear, that's never decided until the very last minute, so that the lost Midians don't know who's going to dash in and snatch the ball. But, tell you what we can do. We can arrange for the race to take place at night, so that Sir Murdoch won't be worried about the spectacle. Yes, that's an excellent idea. In fact, it will make it far more exciting. It's next Thursday, you know. Ian was not at all sure that he approved of this idea, but just then he noticed Sir Murdoch having difficulties in a bunker. A good deal of sand was flying about, and his employer's face was becoming a dangerous dusky red. Here in the sands, thee I'll rake up, he was muttering angrily, and something about murderous lechers. 
Ian ran down to him and suggested that it was time for a glass of beer, waving to Clarissa as he did so. Sir Murdoch noticed her and was instantly mollified. He invited her to join them. Ian, by now head over heels in love, was torn between his professional duty, which could not help pointing out to him how beneficial Clarissa's company was for his patient, and a strong personal feeling that the elderly, wolfish baronet was not at all suitable company for Clarissa. Worse, he suspected that she guessed his anxiety and was laughing at it. LeVar Burton Reads is supported by Audible. Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you, whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, or even learn something new. And with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, Audible has all the audio content you need to start your year on the right foot. Now, I mentioned Ursula K. Le Guin's novel, Dispossessed, to you. It's a science fiction tale elegantly written that explores political theory and individual freedom. It's narrated by Don Leslie, and it will definitely keep your brain percolating, whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo. You can get through tons of books while doing almost anything. And Audible even lets you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. You can start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash LeVar or text LeVar to 500-500. That's audible.com slash L-E-V-A-R or text LeVar to 500-500 for a 30-day trial and your free first audiobook. You can do it with audiobooks. Now, let's get back to our story. The week passed peacefully enough. Sir Murdoch summoned the chairman of the two parish councils and told them that any trespass over his land on the day of the furry race would be punished with the utmost rigor. They listened with blank faces. He also ordered man traps and spring guns from the Dominion and Colonial stores, but to Ian's relief, it seemed highly unlikely that these would arrive in time. Clarissa dropped in frequently. Her playing and singing seemed to have as soothing an effect on Sir Murdoch as the songs of the harpist David on touchy old Saul. But Ian had the persistent feeling that some peril threatened from her presence. On furry day, she did not appear. Sir Murdoch spent most of the day pacing, loping was really the word for it, Ian thought, distrustfully among his far spinnies, but no trespasser moved in the bracken and dying leaves. Towards evening, a fidgety, scuffling wind sprang up, and Ian persuaded his employer indoors. No one will come, Sir Murdoch, I'm sure. Your notices have scared them off. They'll have gone another way. He wished he really did feel sure of it. He found a performance of Caesar and Cleopatra on TV and switched it on. 
but Shaw seemed to make Sir Murdoch impatient. Presently, he got up, began to pace about, and turned it off, muttering, And why should Caesar be a tyrant then? Poor man, I know he would not be a wolf. He swung round on Ian. Did I do wrong to shut them off my land? Well, Ian was temporizing when there came an outburst of explosions from Lostmid, hidden in the valley, and a dozen rockets soared into the sky beyond the windows. That means someone's taken the furry ball, said Hudson, coming in with a decanter of sherry. Bend long enough about it, seemingly. Sir Murdoch's expression changed completely. One stride took him to the French window. He opened it and went streaking across the park. Ian bolted after him. Sir Murdoch, stop! Sir Murdoch, stop! Sir Murdoch turned an almost unrecognizable face and hissed, Wake not a sleeping wolf! He kept on his way, with Ian stubbornly in pursuit. They came out by the crossroads, and looking down to Lost Mid, saw that it was a circus of wandering lights, clustering, darting this way and that. They've lost him, Ian muttered. No, there he goes. One of the lights broke off at a tangent and moved away down the valley, then turned and came straight for them diagonally across the hillside. I'll have to go and warn him off, Ian thought. Can't let him run straight into trouble. He ran downhill towards the approaching light. Sir Murdoch stole back into the shade of the spinney. Nothing of him was visible but two golden glowing eye points. It was at this moment that Clarissa, having established her red herring diversion by sending a boy with a torch across the hillside, ran swiftly and silently up the steep road towards the signpost. She wore trousers and a dark sweater and was clutching the furry ball in her hand. Sir Murdoch heard the pit-pat of approaching footsteps, waited for his moment, and sprang. It was the thick fisherman's knit jersey with its roll collar that saved her. They rolled over and over. Girl and wolf entangled, and then she caught him with a blow on the jaw with the heavy applewood ball, dropped it, scrambled free, and was away. She did not dare look back. She had a remarkable turn of speed, but the wolf was overtaking her. She hurled herself into the telephone box and let the door clang to behind her. The wolf arrived a second later. She heard the impact as the gray, sinewy body struck the door saw the gleam of teeth through the glass. Methodically, though with shaking hands, she turned to dial. Meanwhile, Ian had met the red-herring boy just as his triumphant pursuers caught up with him. You mustn't go that way, Ian gasped. Sir Murdoch's waiting up there, and he's out for blood. Give over that there ball, yelled the Lost Midians. Tisn't on me! The boy yelled back, regardless of the fact that he was being pulled limb from limb. Caught ye properly, me fine fools! Tis Miss Clarissa's got it, and shim gone back away! What? Ian waited for no more. He left them to their battle in which some pole grew reinforcements were now joining, and bounded back up the murderous ascent to where he had left Sir Murdoch. 
The scene at the telephone box was brilliantly lit by the overhead light. Clarissa had finished her call and was watching with detached interest as the infuriated wolf threw himself repeatedly against the door. It is not easy to address your employer in such circumstances. Ian chose a low, controlled, but vibrant tone. Down, Sir Murdoch, he said. Down, sir. Heel. Sir Murdoch turned on him a look of golden, thunderous wrath. He was really a fine spectacle, with his eyes flashing and great ruff raised in rage. He must have weighed all of 130 pounds. Ian thought he might be a timber wolf, but he was not certain. He pulled the ampoule from his pocket, charged the syringe, and made a cautious approach. Instantly, Sir Murdoch flew at him. With a feint like a bullfighter's, Ian dodged round the call box. Ole! Clarissa shouted approvingly, opening the door a crack. Sir Murdoch instantly turned and battered it again. Avant, thou damn doorkeeper! shouted Ian. The result was electrifying. The wolf dropped to the ground as if stunned. Ian seized advantage of the moment to give him his injection, and immediately the wolf shape vanished, dropping off Sir Murdoch like a label off a wet bottle. He gasped, shivered, and shut his eyes. Where am I? he said presently, opening them again. Ian took his arm gently, led him away from the door, and made him sit on a grassy bank. You'll feel better in a minute or two, sir, he said. And since Shakespeare seemed so efficacious, added, The cure whereof, my lord, tis time must do. Sir Murdoch weakly nodded. Clarissa came out of her refuge. Are you all right now, Sir Murdoch, she asked kindly. Shall I sing you a song? All right. Thank you, my dear, he murmured. What are you doing here? And he added to himself, I really must not fly into these rages. I feel quite dizzy. Ian stepped aside and picked up something that glinted on the ground. What's that? asked Sir Murdoch with awakening interest. It reminds me. May I see it? Oh, it's my medallion, said Clarissa at the same moment. It must have come off. Her voice trailed away. They both watched Sir Murdoch. Deep, fearful shudders were running through him. Where did you get this? he demanded turning his cavernous eyes on Clarissa. His fingers were rigid, clenched on the tiny silver St. Francis. It was my mother's, she said faintly. For the first time, she seemed frightened. Was her name Louisa? She nodded. Then your father... Here comes my father now, said Clarissa with relief. The gnarled figure of the doctor was approaching them through the spinney. Sir Murdoch turned on him like a javelin. Oh, thou foul thief, he hissed. My lost Louisa, stolen from me and corrupted by spells and medicines. 
Oh, come, 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 said the doctor equably, never slowing his approach, though he kept a wary eye on Sir Murdoch. I wouldn't put it quite like that. She came to me. I was quite looking forward to bachelorhood. For the which I may go the finer, I will live a bachelor, murmured Ian calmingly. And I'll tell ye this, Sir Murdoch, Dr. Defoe went on, tucking his arm through that of Sir Murdoch like an old friend. You <laughs> were well rid of her. He started strolling at a gentle but purposeful pace back towards the hall, and the baronet went with him doubtfully. Why is that? Already Sir Murdoch sounded half-convinced, quiescent. Well, firstly, my dear sir, temper, out of this world. Secondly, macaroni cheese, every night until one begged for mercy. Thirdly, unpunctuality. Fourthly, long horrifying dreams, which she insisted on telling at breakfast. Pursuing this soothing therapeutic vein, the doctor's voice moved farther away, and the two men were lost in the shadows. So, that's all right, said Clarissa on a deep breath of relief. Why, Ian! Pent up agitation? was too much for him. He had grabbed her in his arms like a drowning man. I was sick with fright for you, he muttered into her hair, her ear, the back of her neck. I was afraid. Oh, well, never mind. Never mind, she agreed. Are we going to get married? Of course. I ought to find my furry ball she said presently. They seem to be having a pitched battle down below. There's a good chance of getting it over the boundary while everyone's busy. But Sir Murdoch... Father, we'll look after him. She moved a few steps away and soon found the ball. Come on, through the wood is quickest. We have to put it on the Polgrew churchyard wall. No one accosted them as they ran through the wood. Fireworks and shouting in the valley suggested that Lost Mid and Polgru had sunk their differences in happy Saturnalia. Full surgery tomorrow, remarked Clarissa, tucking the furry ball into its niche. Won't someone be surprised to see this? When Ian and Clarissa strolled up to the terrace, they found Sir Murdoch and the doctor amiably drinking port. Sir Murdoch looked like a man who had had a festering grief removed from his mind. Well, <laughs> said the doctor cheerfully, we've cleared up some misunderstandings. But Sir Murdoch had stood up and gone to meet Clarissa. As I am a man, he said gravely, I do think this lady to be my child. The two pairs of golden eyes met and acknowledged each other. That'll be the end of his little trouble, I shouldn't wonder, murmured the doctor, especially if she'll live at the hall and keep an eye on him. But she's going to marry me. All the better, my dear boy, all the better. 
And glad I shall be to get rid of her, bless her heart. Ian looked doubtfully across the terrace at his future father-in-law, but he recalled that wolves are among the most devoted fathers of the animal kingdom. Sir Murdoch was stroking Clarissa's hair with an expression of complete peace and happiness. Then a thought struck Ian. If he's her father... But Dr. Defoe was yawning. I'm off to bed. Busy day tomorrow. He vanished among the dark trees. So they were married and lived happily at the hall. Clarissa's slightest wish was law. She was cherished equally by both father and husband. And if they went out of their way not to cross her in any particular, this was due quite as much to the love they bore her as to their knowledge that they had dangerous material on their hands. What I love about Joan's story here is that it's just, it's an old-fashioned yarn, you know? And I'm a sucker for fantasy uh, stories and adventure. It, it's just, it's, you know, it, it, it's got, like we said at the beginning, it's got sort of those elements of, of, of Harry Potter and, you know, and, and little Tolkien. It's just, I don't know, it's, 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 it's old world. It feels old world to me. And it was, it's certainly a story of the time in which it was written. And I feel that time period when I read this story. I'm sort of thrown back into a a time and a place and culture that that simply doesn't exist on this planet anymore, not not even in Britain. It it, it really doesn't exist anymore. And and it's just it's nice to to visit. And the setup in the story, you know, when we open in the museum, you know, we really get the information right away that that this guy, this Sir Murdoch, is high maintenance, right? We are cued to be on eggshells around this character as everybody in the story responds to him that way, right? Peachtree, Dr. Peachtree, you know, that's his job is to is to coddle this guy and to keep him calm and from going off and and hooking out. Um, and then there's Clarissa, right? Who is, and I, I, I don't think she makes a conscious choice to treat him differently. I don't think she treats him any differently than she does anybody else, which is part of, I think, Clarissa's charm. It's just who she is. She has the charm to soothe the savage beast. I have encountered plenty of wolves in my life. Um, several directors, in fact. Um, and, and I've learned a lot from those directors, mostly how not to behave uh, as a director. As the middle child uh, in my family, um, I think I, I developed you know, some of those wolf-taming skills. My mother was an intensely stern taskmaster. Um, I was always the one who could make my mother laugh. And that's how I disarmed her. 
um, by making her laugh. So um, my sisters thought I had magical powers, but uh, I, I just made her laugh. That was my wolf-taming approach. Um, make them laugh. <laughs> Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith. Our assistant producer is Audrey Ngo. Editing and sound design by the very talented Adam Dybert. And as always, thank you to the effervescent Matt Gorley. And we are so grateful to our friends at Little Everywhere for their help in producing this episode. My great thanks today to the estate of Joan Aiken for allowing me to read Joan's wonderful story. And you can find it in her collection, The People in the Castle published by Small Beer Press. Visit your local independent bookshop or smallbeerpress.com to get your copy. And here's some exciting news about LeVar Burton Reads Live. I'll be taping a live version of the podcast in Chicago on Friday, March 23rd. And I'll be joined by the brilliant writer, Nettie Okorafor. I'll read a story accompanied by live music, and then Nettie and I will sit down afterward for a great conversation. It's part of WBEZ's podcast passport. So go to WBEZ.org slash events to get your tickets. And if you don't live in Chicago, I'll be announcing more live tour dates this week. So keep your eyes peeled for those. And please, if you love the show and want to help other people find it, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, leaving a review why not go ahead and suggest a story for the show? Because I have loved hearing your thoughts about the podcast. We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story. Or, if you can't wait that long, listen to the next episode right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar. Or, if you're listening in Stitcher, just tap the menu button in your app and select Premium, and you'll get one month for free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelette. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. I'm Sean Ramos from the host of Today Explained, a new show from Vox. It's an all-killer, no-filler daily news explainer that'll answer all the questions you ask yourself about the news. Our show's going to explain the news every way we know how. Clips, trips, radio drama, maybe even a song. We're going to drop it for the dinner bell every afternoon. But not on the weekend. The music comes fast, so we keep it spontaneous. Clive, Cliff, Cliff, Motherfucker, Natalie, Today. She was warned. Nevertheless, she persisted. Gordy, I hope there are tapes. Alternative facts. Very fine people on both sides. Reclaiming my time. Fire and fury. When nobody ever has to say, me too, again. Today Explained starts February 19th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. 
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everyone knows that the best way to tell a good story is over a good drink. Spirit in a Bottle, Tells and Drinks from Tito's Handmade Vodka, brings them together. In its first ever cocktail book, Tito's offers fans recipes, mixology tips, and a never-before-seen look at its journey from a one-room distillery to becoming America's favorite vodka. Order your copy today at titosvodka.com book. Read it and sip with Tito's. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly.